You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. Today, we have Adam Ryan, who is president and co-founder of CapShift. Previous to that, he's been a founder, developed an incubator, has more degrees than I can count, and is now bringing together founders and investors in an impact investing platform he's going to tell us all about. Adam, welcome. Thanks, Miles. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on the show. Uh, Perhaps we could start with your current venture, and I'd love to get into more of your background later. Can you tell us what is CapShift? Sure, happy to. Uh, CapShift is a new venture we started a couple years ago to build the leading impact investing platform serving large financial and philanthropic institutions. Uh, so that's a mouthful, but just stepping back, there's uh, something many people don't realize, $1 trillion of charitable assets sitting in foundations or donor-advised funds waiting to be granted away but primarily sitting in traditional you know, investment mutual funds or money market accounts, uh, not being tapped or utilized for good. And so we uh, set up CapShift to help those institutions that manage that trillion dollars, much of it you know, guided by wealthy families, access the new wave of impact investment options to use that money for good, whether it's a renewable energy fund or an affordable housing opportunity uh, or a a microfinance fund. So many great options and trying to make it easier to tap uh, so much capital sitting on the sidelines. So this is money that's been earmarked for philanthropy to give away as a, to a nonprofit, to give away as charity, but it's being invested in the meantime. Why don't people just give it away right away? Well, you know, most most families, when they get wealthy enough, start to think about their legacy. And so I'm sure you're familiar with many, you know, famous foundations, you know, whether it's the Rock, Rockefeller Foundation or even Gates Foundation that say, you know, it's very hard to give away money efficiently quickly and it's better to set it up for years or even generations. And so you start to see these multi-generational charitable vehicles. Uh, and traditionally, the view was, you know, investments is really just about only one thing, which is maximizing return. And so they would hire an investments team to invest that money in in the stock market or other vehicles, uh, hedge funds to just make as much money as they could. And they didn't pay much attention to what it went to. So you could see these conflicts where a environmental focused foundation may have a lot of money and and ExxonMobil and BP, uh, and then they might be donating money to to nonprofits to fight those same, you know, uh, oil and gas companies they're investing in. And so, you know, there's been this new 21st century model of philanthropy saying, hey, we should start to integrate our mission and values into our investments, just like we do with our grant making. Gotcha. So do you offer an array of different types of investments or different asset classes, or do you focus? Yeah. And so we, we initially, uh, started this venture with uh, partners in 
a lesser known part of the market called donor advised funds, which are big institutions like Fidelity Charitable or large community foundations that uh, house these charitable accounts on behalf of many individual or family clients. And so we had uh, our clients who said, look, the, the, the families we work with care about all sorts of issues. It could be environment, it could be health or education or poverty or racial justice. And so we worked to build one of the broadest impact investing databases we could um, covering all types of products across all types of issues. Because what we recognize is that, you know, impact or, or purpose is very specific to the individual. And so we wanted to try to bring high quality opportunities that could match the specific issue or geographical region that that a family would care about. So there's some things that are publicly traded, you know, you know, equities or fixed income. There's private equity funds uh, or private debt funds, you know, and all the way to uh, investment options housed by nonprofits. So it's a really complicated part of the market, but one we're trying to uh, offer a platform uh, much like other platforms out there have done, like AngelList or Kiva, to try to bring some efficiency for folks with assets to find great opportunities. So it's like an AngelList for impact investing. Yeah, I, I think that's it at a at a at a high level. I think the difference is AngelList goes and targets angel investors directly. We've really gone to these large multi-billion-dollar institutions or wealth management firms. Uh, to make it easier for many, many families to access it through through them. And how does that money reach a private company like a startup? Does it ever get to that individual level? Uh, yeah. So most of the opportunities on our platform are funds, and some of those are venture capital funds, which invest in startups uh, across um, the different sectors or issue areas. There's one that's targeting the circular economy, investing in uh, recycling-based startups, for example. You can also use charitable assets to invest directly into companies. Uh, there's a smaller set of folks do that who are very comfortable and taking that kind of risk. Um, but certainly, you can go uh, to a donor-advised fund or private foundation or directly and put uh, get a tax break and put your charitable dollars into impact-focused companies today. And we think that there's going to be a growing movement to do that. Gotcha. Tell us a little bit about the scale. How, how have you grown over the years and where are you now? Yeah, so we, uh, you know, we're relatively new. We started it uh, two years ago. You know, previously I came out of the startup world and uh, the family office investing world. Uh, and so um, the past year has been our first full year of launch uh, where we started to expand outside of our, our beta test. And we're kind of at the scale of moving tens of millions of dollars uh, into impact. Uh, that's a great first step. You know, we're excited to go into hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. That's really the vision. And there's a lot of capital um, waiting to be moved. Uh, but really for us, it's both inspiring people and making it easy to tell the stories of all the great investment opportunities, but also removing all of the hassle and complexity or other barriers, whether it's compliance barriers or legal barriers or financial advisory barriers that have stopped people from doing this in the past. One of the reasons I think it's so interesting to have you on the show is you've seen this market from so many different angles. I mean, you've been a startup founder, you've been an investor, um, and 
you, you've worked a, a created an incubator, and now you're sitting on the side almost of the LP who's investing in VC funds. So you're seeing the ecosystem from a number of directions. And I'm really curious, as you've gone through that journey and had those different perspectives, what learnings have you taken away that you would share for a want-to-be startup founder or a founder who's in the midst now of starting a startup for good? Yeah. Um, well, it's funny, Miles, because you and I first uh, brushed shoulders 20 years ago as undergrads. And uh, it was only recently that we got reconnected, which was a lot of fun. And it was the way we originally connected was looking at, uh, you know, the, the Yale Entrepreneurial Society, which you helped start. And I, I got inspired by as an undergrad. And I think my first takeaway uh, was, you know, many young people that we meet are kind of on this fixed analyst-like track of, of going into financial services or corporate world. And I think very early on, I was inspired by the more risk-taking side of the professional path to say, maybe there's a more, more entrepreneurial journey where you can uh, help create new ventures or new programs by taking a risk that they might fail. So I think one big takeaway has been, I think a lot of our education system and and uh, heroes out there, you know, we the more heroes we can that are on the risk-taking entrepreneurial side, the better, because... There's so many talented people that just need a little push uh, to take some risk and, and do big things. Um, you know, uh, uh, on the more recent side, you know, I uh, coming out of grad school, I helped start up uh, a clean tech company called Alteros, which now is working to bring low-cost connectivity solutions to rural communities and businesses. We also helped start up what's now the largest clean climate technology incubator in the country called Greentown Labs. Uh, and I think, you know, for me, uh, 10 years ago, there was a lot less of an ecosystem to help startups in, in the, the clean tech sector. Uh, and I think a big learning has been that, um, that, you know, people use the word ecosystem a lot, but that um, the more that it, appears easy to do, the more you'll have people willing to take that leap. And so um, there's this, you know, a virtuous circle that comes when you have, you know, really smart uh, PhD students or people who want, you know, are unhappy with their job in the corporate world, who think it's the best and that most natural thing in the world to make the leap to start that company uh, and be inspired just as I would. And then it's all that great talent that ultimately draws in the investment capital into the sector because they're really taking the leap to bring the technology to market. So originally, I, I, and I've always thought of myself as an entrepreneur. And when I met venture capitalists uh, in school, they seemed out of touch from what I wanted to do. They, it seemed like uh, people just had to say no all the time or kind of had to be up uh, on a pedestal somewhere. But uh, you know, getting connected to the family office investment world was a more natural fit for me where you could really work with mission-driven families who very much integrated their purpose into their investment. And, and that's how I kind of found my path forward between these two camps. And when you are investing from that perspective, what are the key metrics or what are the key things, attributes that an investor is looking for in a startup? Um, from the perspective of uh, like a family investor? Yeah, mission-driven family office. Or the other kinds of LPs that you work with at CapShift? Yeah, um, I think we we oftentimes talk about a triangle, which is just like every investor, you know, family investors look 
you know, primarily at financial uh, risk and return as, as the core metric. I think there's two other elements that they bring in. One is most people we work with want to change the world in a big way. And so the idea of looking not just at the impact of a company today, but um, how do you measure the catalytic impact of what a company can do five or 10 years from now? Uh, and that takes uh, looking not just at the widget that a company makes. If it's a education startup, which I know you've worked with, you could say, how many students does this startup help educate? But the maybe the more important metric is, if this new model is successful, how many other companies will replicate it and how much can it transform the whole education market? So I think that's really the second leg of the stool. And then the third and possibly the hardest is we have to think about how does this personally touch the individual family member that's investing? And this is more like the angel investing world, which is many angel investors don't just look at financial and don't just look at impact. They oftentimes look at I am personally connected to this story. I personally care about this issue area. Or uh, the founder and I have a connection because we're alumni from the same school. And so, or, or it's in my hometown and you know, it's in the same city a block away from me. So I want to be connected. So there's that extra layer of the, not just financial assessment and impact assessment, but help making it easier for people to find a personal connection to the opportunities they're, they're uh, looking at putting capital into. And that last one, that personal connection, do you find that that drives people to do more? Or is that a screen that ends up making promising projects go starved for capital? Because there isn't that emotional tug. Um, I think it's it works both ways. And I think, you know, we are, we're in a world now where there's been a raised awareness this year, not just about uh, pandemics, but also about... Uh, uh, equity and racial justice and awareness that guys like you and me who went to the Ivy League school, you know, we may find it easier to raise money from other Ivy League alumni who feel connected to us. But uh, entrepreneurs who may come from more underserved backgrounds may lack that that kind of personal connectivity to larger parts of the capital pool. You see the same thing with founders who come from smaller cities and they may, may lack the access to the capital pool in the big uh, investment hubs on the coast. So I think it works both ways. And so, you know, we try to, you know, we can't solve it 100%. We can't change all the universe of investors, but we do try to make it easier for people to um, matchmake. And it's not just, oh, I, I can only raise money through my LinkedIn network, but no, we want to kind of raise awareness of, all these unique attributes of your opportunity. So there's multiple ways, whether it's geography or shared passion or shared purpose that other people can connect into what you're trying to achieve. Right. And in-fast investing has become really more popular over the last few years. Do you have any sense of what's driving that? Yeah, you know, you know, going back to the original story, there's something that was disconnected of um, kind of, my my left hand's going to make as much money as it can and my and then I'll give it to the right hand which is gives it all away as fast as I can and the two sides don't even think about each other aren't connected i think you know over decades you started to see uh, more of the integrated you know self you know just like people care a lot more about the values of the companies they work at today and you see purpose driven companies attracting and retaining talent it's natural that wealth owners are also going to be 
purpose-driven in how they shop or even invest their money as well. Um, I think on the flip side, uh, 10 years ago when I first started, a common criticism is there's just a lack of high-quality investment opportunities. You know, 10 years ago, you had a clean tech sector that was losing a lot of money. Um, you had very few ed tech funds with a track record. Um, you had, you know, uh, just a lack of uh, quality pr products with track records. And now you've started to see, you know, a lot more talented entrepreneurs and investment professionals uh, building out impact-focused products, which just make it easier for people to put, put capital in. Um, I think there still is confusion. The word impact investing today, people get confused. Does that mean that I'm, you know, generating market rate financial returns or is it concessionary returns? Does that mean include the public markets or is it private markets? And so a lot of the kind of inner circle still gets hung up on these definitional issue, issues. Um, there's, there's pieces of this in all those. And so I think the good thing is that Mostly, whatever someone's trying to achieve now, there's there's a way to do it, and I think there's, you know, Captive's not the only platform. There's a lot of great new intermediaries, new new products, and new ways for people to uh, lower the barrier to to getting this done. Thank you for that. Thank you for being a loyal listener. One thing I'd ask is please consider joining our giving circle. We support startup tech nonprofits with our donor dollars to act as the angels to seed new organizations seeking to scale and do good. So please go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. I'd love to change the topic to your own entrepreneurial journey. Uh, you mentioned Greentown being the largest climate incubator in the country or maybe the world. Um, I'm just looking at the website and the numbers are astounding. Uh, over 280 companies incubated, over a billion dollars in funding raised, 6,500 jobs created, and an 88% startup survival rate. Those all sound really impressive. Uh, would love to hear more about how that came, came to be and your role in it. Sure, happy to. And uh, this is definitely a takes a village story. I was one of five uh, co-founders. Um, but Greentown's been, you know, something I've, I've worked on as my second or third job over the past decade and something I'm very proud of. Um, the president, em Emily, takes a huge part of that credit as she's really been at the helm for the past seven or eight years driving that vision forward. But, you know, the origin of Greentown is as many of these, uh, is that it was a little bit accidental. You know, I I was coming out of grad school, had met a really talented engineer named Ben Glass, who had a vision for a high altitude wind energy company. I was inspired and we worked on the business plan together and then launched a company together along with our third co-founder, Alain Goubeau. Uh, and we realized that we needed some, somewhere to go to build this company. We needed uh, cheap you know, rent. It needed to be close to MIT where the founders were all... Uh, uh, coming out of, and we needed some uh, dirty space where we could build real prototypes of this novel technology we were working on. And we realized we weren't alone. You know, every year out of not just MIT, but the other Boston area universities or other teams that looked a lot like us that were looking for something similar. And so originally there were four companies that all, uh, you know, found this really dirty space that used to be the old distribution 
uh, beer facility for the Cheers bar. That was, you know, the basis of the the old TV sitcom Cheers. And we, I think we paid a couple hundred bucks of rent and there's no air condition. There's no heating system in the winter. It was kind of really, really gritty. Uh, but, you know, that's sometimes what you need. It's the kind of our equivalent of the Silicon Valley garage. And we realized a lot of other people needed the same thing. And uh, I think what helped us is that we formed Greentown because more and more startups came knocking on our door, asking if they could share this space with us. And we realized that we were all working on some sort of environmentally good or sustainable or clean technology solutions. And so there was a common set of investors, customers, interns, suppliers, who when they met one of us, wanted to meet all of us. And it was that synergy and shared culture that provided the ethos of Greentown. Uh, our motto was kind of for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. And by the time um, we had 15 companies, we realized us kind of founders who had day jobs couldn't really do this on the side. And we brought in Emily, who brought in some corporate partners. Uh, and yeah, and now it's, uh, it's a great facility. It's expanding from Boston to Houston, another great ecosystem. Uh, we called it clean tech for many years, but under Emily's vision, we decided to double down on climate change as the singular uh, vision that the companies would be tackling. So climate tech is the, the new word of uh, the day. And um, I'm a proud board member. Um, yeah, that's very exciting. I love hearing those gritty stories of the beginning, uh, being scrappy, not paying a lot. We used to have a slogan at the early days of my first startup, which is cheap is good, free is better. Um, and you, you emphasized a couple of times how dirty it was there. I can just imagine, yeah, um, yeah. you know, and, and something else in that story I thought was interesting is you were talking about founders building community, founders building that startup eco ecosystem. And I think it's really important. It's something Brad Feld talks about in startup communities ultimately need to be led and built by founders, not investors. Um, you also touched a little bit in your story about Greentown on Elteros, and I'd love to hear more about that story specifically. I mean, when you look at the pictures, it's like a big blimp, um, right? I mean, how, how would you describe it to people? Sure. No, it it definitely looks like uh, uh, an industrial strength Goodyear blimp. Um, and, you know, I'll just caveat this by saying, having been in the startup ecosystem, um, that, you know, we do have this, you know, I've been lucky that I've worked on ventures that to date have uh, continued to grow and scale. But every every venture I've worked on has had at least two or three moments where we were very close to to failing and going under. And so I will say that, you know, whether it's some, you know, some combination of of luck or fate or, or hard work that, you know, there is some success bias in our sector. And and I'll I'll touch upon some of the the successes we've had, but you know, you know, in 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 diving into this journey, everyone needs to be ready to to brush brush with failure. And if you fail, you don't take it personal. You learn. Uh, you get back on your feet and and try to look at the next venture. And I think that's that's a really important lesson I've taken. And you know, Brad Feld also talks about the psychological challenge of kind of emotionally surviving. You know, years and years of an entrepreneurial journey. And it's something I've learned firsthand. And and uh, it's important for all of us. And I'm sure you have two miles with the number of startups you've been a part of. Yeah, failure can be painful, personally painful. But one of the strengths of good startup ecosystems is recognizing that failure is the cost of success. Like with that volatility, the uncertainty of the outcome, 
that's very deeply connected with the value that's being created. And therefore, if you accept people who have failed in their last venture and give them another chance, you're going to have a stronger ecosystem and you're going to have more innovation. Yeah. So let me let me share a bit about Alteros. And this was, you know, there's a lot of um, startup advice blogs and books out there. And I think one of the, you know, classic mantras is, you know, the best way to start a company is with a customer with a problem. Uh, know that deeply and solve that problem. Uh, you know, we, Alteros has been a 10-year journey. And in many ways, we broke that rule and that, we started with uh, technology and have pivoted uh, to, to find the right problem over the years. But the technology was that, although most of us know of blimps, you know, f- you know, uh, filming football and baseball games, there's for decades been a hidden part of that tech- technology, which are big industrial balloons that are tethered to the ground, providing communications or surveillance for governments and militaries. They're called tethered aerostats. They're as old as nuclear plants. They've been around forever, but they typically, you know, are, you know, in Afghanistan or over military bases and just uh, are on the border and not not typically known to, to folks like you and me because they're very, very expensive. They have teams of people that man them and they're kind of this mil- mainly military equipment. And my co-founder, Ben, had been working with a professor at MIT who is a former secretary of the Air Force and what they realize is that as decades have gone by, the kind of technologies that are enabling autonomous vehicles actually or autopilots on airplanes can be brought in to actually automate, fully automate this kind of old school equipment and bring it from the military world into the industrial world. And that was really the vision behind Alteros. Our original vision was a... Uh, airborne wind turbine that would be mounted on a tethered balloon, tethered aerostat, uh, which we worked for years put, you know, developing the platform for. And along the way, as we started to build out this really successful technology platform, what started to happen is that oil prices started to drop, if you can go back maybe five years ago, from being, you know, very high to very low. And uh, another part of the market, which was communications, you started to see lots and lots of people in more rural areas getting smartphones and all of a sudden wanting, needing lots and lots more data to stream video. And so we pivoted the business about five years ago from thinking about renewable energy to how could we lift telecommunications equipment four or five times higher than a cell tower could go to bring really cheap broadband to rural communities, uh, rural businesses both in the U.S. and international. Uh, and so we got funded by originally SoftBank and then some other great investors. Uh, and it's been a long journey, longer than it should in some sense. But, you know, we're finally at the precipice of putting our, after a first, we did a customer demo, but our first kind of real customer unit out in, in, in their hands at the beginning of next year. And I've kind of peak to the scale of many years of R&D and to kind of being in the commercial mode of the business. So you were just touching on what I think was a near-death experience for the company. You're saying entirely switching business models, even markets and products, really. I mean, it was still on a mobile platform, you know, floating in the air, but you're going from energy generation to data services. That seems like a big change. How did you go through that? Yeah, so I'd say that the near-death experience happened a year earlier 
when we basically had put up our demonstrate an initial wind turbine demonstration, we had tried to raise some venture capital. We weren't successful. We'd gotten some government funding, and that was starting to, to dwindle out. And you know, in terms of fundraising strategy, hindsight's twenty twenty. But the best thing we ever did was put up a YouTube video of this very visible technology that got on the first page of Reddit somehow, and all of a sudden got a half a million views of the YouTube video, which led to a bunch of newspaper reporters uh, reaching out to us to see if they could write about it. One of those reporters was in Japan and put our story in the leading business uh, newspaper in Japan. And that caught the eye of the wife of the founder of SoftBank, uh, Masa-san, which led him to send his team to reach out to us. So that's about as convoluted of a fundraising story you can think of. But you know, we had you know a hundred other fundraising attempts that didn't work, and it, it kind of taught us that you you, you know you never know in this world what's going to lead to success. So you have to think very probabilistically of by putting many many balls in the air that you're juggling at once and continue to push forward till one of them comes through. And so, you know, but when SoftBank first invested in us, we were down to two or three full-time staff. You know, we had all shrunk our salaries and we're just hanging on for dear life. Uh, and then after they funded, we collectively decided to make the pivot to, to telecom. But uh, yeah, that was a bit of our, our story. Wow. Uh, imagining founders listening to this, writing down, get on Reddit in order to get SoftBank money. And when you say SoftBank these days, people are thinking like hundreds of millions of dollars of investment. Um, is that the scale that we're talking about here? No, no. We So we raised money prior to their vision fund. You know, SoftBank's become now the, you know, the largest tech investor. This was in uh, 2014. So uh, our initial check was about seven million dollars uh, out of out of this uh, the corporate group, uh, and we've you know they've continued to be our our, our biggest uh, backer and supporter since then. Yeah, it just and we have other great you know before that there were great angel investors and we've had you know this this collective of other great funders join us. So it hasn't been a single investor effort, but I think it's kind of that test of you know in the end it's perseverance and keep trying till you succeed. And we were fortunate enough to, to make it there. What other advice would you offer founders in a similar situation where the original market just completely shifts on them and it no longer makes sense to pursue? Yeah, you know, it's, it's tough. You know, I think in this case, it was really my co-founder, Ben, who pushed the pivot, which was 100% the right move. I think having been in many boardrooms like you have, Miles, I've seen that businesses and ventures have inertia, and it's always easier to stay the same path than it is to change, right? You have all your materials, you have set expectations of all your employees, your investors, um, and to do these kind of pivots becomes harder and harder as you become bigger. So I think usually you have to recognize that you know, the right answer, if there's already inertia fighting against you, it's probably the wrong move. And that it takes a certain boldness of action to get to the right point. And I think what's hardest for people is that you always have uh, a lack of data or information. You're always in these information asymmetries. So I don't have any magic advice. There's certainly companies that may have pivoted too early or too soon in the wrong direction and got off track. But I would say that I would guess that of every 100 companies considering that things aren't working and I need to pivot, 
more the majority are likely to be too conservative and too slow rather than too fast and too aggressive. And so just understand that you need to be fighting our biases and instincts to get to that right answer. And if you would offer some more advice to founders who are working on purpose-driven ventures, how should they communicate with investors? How much emphasis do they put on the business for-profit case and how much emphasis to put on the mission? Yeah, and I think Greentown's a great ecosystem that shares that. Right now, I think there's about 80 companies, all purpose-driven in one way or another. I think the answer depends. and You could broadly break up purpose-driven companies between ones where they uh, their risk return profile is broadly similar to other startups, and that you know they clearly have a strong financial case to succeeding, and in some ways the impact is is just a another really strong benefit of investing. In that case, you tend to find that the kind of story and pitch deck has a lot of purpose that's integrated into the market opportunity. They very much lead like a traditional pitch would. And then kind of the scale of the impact happens towards the end is the icing on the cake and kind of the wrapping of the the presentation that says, not only is this a great investment, but you also can change the world. I think there's a second class of companies where the the market seems very uncertain. You oftentimes find this in uh, developing countries where you know a friend of mine from grad school wanted to start a business uh, turning sanitation and individual latrines in Africa into fertilizers and other agricultural products. In this case, very much they're leading with the impact. The business, most traditional investors will look at this business as too high risk for them. And so their primary audience is going to be impact-focused families, foundations, or other purpose-driven funders. And, and then you flip it, you kind of more lead with purpose, and the financial story becomes kind of the story of how do we get to a path where we can scale this so that we're not just helping, you know, 100 families, but you know, a million families or 10 million families. And so, you know, I think it's very much tailored to the type of investor audience you're going after. That makes sense. Do you have a favorite book or article that you would recommend to founders? When I, you know, I'm, I'm a little dated, but David Bornstein wrote, you know, a powerful book around social entrepreneurship called, I think it's called How to Change the World or something of that nature. There's also a great primer on impact investing, uh, by Jed, Emer- Jed Emerson and a couple other authors called, uh, I believe it's The Impact Investor. Um, and so I think there's some great kind of inspirational stories to help people realize a lot of this is, you know, who are the heroes? You know, nowadays, we have some great entrepreneurial heroes, but they tend to be maybe the, the people who have built the, the most massive financial companies, the Elon Musks of the world or the Bill Gates of the world become the heroes. I think these kind of books uh, open up to maybe that next tier of heroes where um, even if you don't become a billionaire, you find these great success stories of people who took risk, created something that seems so unique and and powerful and changing the world. And uh, many of them were able to have financial success along the way. I think those kind of stories are very inspirational to this emerging crop of, of entrepreneurs coming. So who are your heroes? Yeah, for me, uh, and you know, it, it may sound a little cliche, but Muhammad Yun- Yunus was it was kind of inspirational for me and in the whole learning about the whole microfinance movement. 
and, and it sounds maybe even more bizarre, but when we were back as undergrads 20 years ago, it was Newman's own salad dressing that really sh shook me. And I, I was kind of interested in, you know, uh, social good and nonprofits. I was kind of interested in business and learning that there was this business that made salad dressing and they had committed to donating 100% of their profits to charity. Uh, kind of inspired me that there was a different way to do things than maybe traditional business and traditional philanthropy. And so I think, uh, uh, and uh, and I as, and I know you remember the story, but honest tea. The many folks have uh, see it in the supermarkets now, but 20 years ago, it was a new kind of drinks company that said we're gonna, you know, kind of embed health into and social good into the values of this you know, uh, low, low sugar tea uh, company. And so I think all of these kind of sat in the back of my head. And, you know, I went down that traditional strategy consulting path for many years. Uh, but, you know, I, I had enough self-awareness to realize that this wasn't the path for me and, and kind of found, found a path much more aligned uh, as quick as I could, which, which has been great. Thank you for that. I think we'll end with that inspiration and those heroes. Barry and Seth have been on the show before, so check out that episode, and you can learn more about the story of honesty. Adam, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, and uh, this is an important podcast, and, and look forward to continuing to listen in the future. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website, 